Elon Musk lands a deal to take Twitter private for $44 billion, making it one of the biggest leveraged buyouts in history. And I'll talk with David Manilow about how restaurants approach social media and influencers in order to attract diners. So I guess technically I'm an influencer, (laughs) but I hate that word because it's just like you're influencing what, you know? So I just like to call myself as a creator. A digital creator. Yeah, digital creator. And so it was easier to get the word out. It was it was almost like having that kind of town square announcement capability, but through the lens of capitalism. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Wednesday, April 27th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours, too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. David Manilow is back for our weekly conversation about the food service world. And this week we're talking about how restaurants use social media and influencers to attract diners and connect with their customers. Welcome back, David. Thanks, Amy. So this is a a big topic and I think so much has changed and continues to change. I think that's the thing with social media that that as soon as you master it, there's a new platform or a new new, uh, feature on that platform to, to master. But you talked with Phil Walters from Be Hospitality. What is his approach to these digital tools? B Hospitality, Phil Walters at John Ross. They own the Bristol, Formentos, Nona's, their partners at Swift and Sons. And they've been doing this since the beginning. And I remember years ago, like 2009 or 10, uh, a friend of mine named Kathy Calhoun, who was a big um, executive at Weber Shanwick, which is a big PR firm, was saying to me, oh, um, we should go to the Bristol tonight. They have ramps or something. I'm like, how would you know that? She goes, oh, I follow them on Twitter. And so do we maintain the PR angle? Of course, because you want to be able to have a direct contact to the desks of those that are writing. But at the same time, we wanted to have a direct correspondence with those that we considered our regulars, because it was one thing to say salutation at the end of the dinner. But, you know, hey, here's things that are going on in real time. And, you know, we, we can we can send out our megaphone and put our bat signal on the cloud so everyone knows. And then like five years ago, I was at the Bristol having dinner with my wife and another couple. And there was like four to six women in their mid-20s having a great time, giggling the entire time and taking photos. And they were clearly doing it to post them somewhere. And so I called John Ross over and I'm like, John, what is happening here? And he's like, oh, you know what? It cost me the price of a meal. They post them on Instagram. They got all these followers out there. So it's it's a very low cost way of getting the word out for us. So they had been specifically invited there. Absolutely. It was a part. Of, they knew they were there. These these are not just folks that were just like wandered in hoping. So Be Hospitality has always been way ahead of the curve. And, and Phil, you know, has all kinds of interesting things to say, but I think he understands the trajectory of social media and how it's gone from Twitter to Facebook to Instagram and now to TikTok and how you can tell stories in some ways through video and how you can talk directly to your customers versus 
you know, trying to get somebody to write a story about you. And for us, you know, we get to benefit because, you know, traditional rails uh, with legacy media had a certain kind of uh, dollar figure. Some of them are unattainable and some of them just didn't make sense. You know, I think Shaw's, for example, is one of the only restaurants in town that has a big old billboard that people look to as you're going on the on-ramp on Ohio going downtown. Not a lot of restaurants benefit from doing traditional kind of billboard marketing and media. Rarely do you see restaurants perform well in magazines. You know, if I'm on an, on an airplane and I open up the American Express magazine, I don't see a ton uh, of things done unless it's a true uh, written piece about that restaurant giving some content, you know. Right. You're paying for advertising, whether local or national magazines. You can't really quantify it how well they do for you. Well, and, and the, the experiential aspect is, is really bad. I mean, if I'm trying to show medium rare filet on an advertising, depending upon the light, it can look well done. I mean, it's just, it's just not right. But if I take that same advertorial approach through say Facebook and, you know, everybody is scrolling through their grandkids pictures or the big fish story from their friend. And all of a sudden I've inserted myself by putting a dedicated amount of money per month, let's call it $1,000, and that gets me a certain amount of eyeballs that I've paid for. And Facebook has, for lack of a better, wedged me in between the big fish picture and the grandkid picture. And they're forced to bear witness to my product. And I can even insert that as a, maybe a short play video or an enriched color with filters that I've deemed you know, fit for, the, for their advertisement. You know, now the nature of advertising has changed. And I, and I think that, you know, Facebook's, you know, price to earnings ratio has shown that they're pretty much purely an advertising company, you know, that connects dots and uses your microphone to listen to what you want and then put those things on your screen to make you buy more. So, you know, it, it's an interesting time. And, and we found that it, it does help in the restaurant world because it helps express our experiential nature of what we do better. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the most powerful lessons I ever got from social media was like early Twitter, Facebook days. My grandfather started noticing little Twitter and Facebook icons in the newspaper and was like, what is that? And here's a man who like believed you should always be studying something new. That was like the the key to life. And he he lived, he made it to almost 100. So I'm going to listen to, you know, his advice. But he was curious about them, right? And and I I thought like, how am I going to explain this to this guy? But I, I showed him Twitter and Facebook and I picked like brands that grandpa's like, you know, like Sears and Crafts and tools, right? But he saw a customer service issue getting resolved and he he got it immediately. He was like, oh, this is a return to that person-to-person -person business model. This isn't just me armed with like an 800 number against some big monolith corporation. Even if I don't get my way, a human being's going to hear me. And and that, that was such a like an aha moment for me with social media. And I think that's exactly what we've seen with restaurants. I know during early parts of the pandemic, when immediately restaurants were closed and then some started opening up for takeout, you could check the Google listing, but it wasn't always current. It was Instagram. That's what was current. It would be like, hey, we're open today right. until noon for takeout, and this is what we have, or we have this special deal. And you would see restaurants posting around holidays for a takeout package. You know, there was like, I think Mother's Day was probably the first big holiday once, you know, early in 2022 when, when everything hit, where you'd see these kind of like a big take-home basket or like a cook-it-at-home sort of thing. And people all learned about that from Instagram. And during the pandemic, during the early days, there were places that just started their own little to-go places. I mean, maybe out of the kitchen. I went to Three Little Pigs, this little place that is always sell out that has... Um, Asian food. And it was all, you just, you booked it on Instagram. You connected them with Instagram. You gave feedback on Instagram. It, it, and it's really is fascinating as we've come to understand, even through the advent of YouTube, we're, we're pushing down that road as well from having more of an interactive approach with getting 
uh, in tune with what is going on in the mind of a chef, his personality, the foodstuffs that he's putting forth. And YouTube is a wonderful platform for that. And, you know, what we found is, is that these people, you know, capitalism is a wonderful thing if, if used properly. And, and people have found that they can create careers out of this and monetize a certain captive audience. And the bigger the captive audience, the greater the monetization. And so, um, you know, people that have 50, 60, 100,000 followers on an Instagram, you know, that, that means something to them or that means something to at least to Instagram and potential advertisers that want to kind of jump on the bandwagon for that certain kind of clientele that they represent. Some of the influencers like to be called uh, digital creators. You know, they have enough followers that they can get some of their followers to get excited to and engage to go to places because they've gone to places. And I think it's been interesting to see how brands have changed attitudes a bit about ROI mm -hmm. connected to social. I think at first it was like, you know, what's the transaction amount? But I think people understand now that your customers are talking about you on these platforms, whether you're there or not. So it behooves you to be there and be part of that conversation and kind of show, uh, as you said, a story about what's going on there at your business. Right. And so I also talked to uh, Sue Park. So Sue Park runs this uh, Instagram site called Fab Food Chicago. She has about 85,000 followers. To make a long story short, I was in corporate marketing for many years and then I got into a car accident while recovering from a major back surgery, like three weeks before my wedding. Um, <laughs> so I had to learn how to walk again, like three weeks before my wedding. And during that time, um, I just decided to quit my corporate job because I couldn't sit in the office for eight to 10 hours. And during that time, I was thinking, what am I passionate about? And I lived in Chicago all my life. And I've always wanted to do something for myself and support something in the food industry. So I just started uh, Fab Food Chicago as a hobby. As I started to meet business owners, I realized a lot of people didn't know how to use social media. So I started my own like consulting business. So I run social media for restaurants as well. So what makes a good restaurant social media account? You just need to be authentic. Um, everyone has a story to tell. And I think those stories are amazing. Um, I had an opportunity to write a book back in 2019. And during that time, when I met business owners, I realized everyone has an awesome story. And and she was really talking about, you know, people now, in, in, when they're viewing social media, they want to understand who's in the kitchen. They want to connect with these places, in addition to perhaps knowing what the Easter special is or, you know, what's, you know, what they're, if they're doing a tasting menu, you know, what that is all about. But it's really about the connection. And I, I think it's called social media for a reason, right? It's, yeah, it's the social part that makes it work. I asked her, actually, I'm like, well, let's say, you know, there's a, you know, a restaurateur that's been in the business for 15 years and he doesn't understand it. How should he get into, into it? And she's like, I mean, I would say go hire someone who's an expert in social media, because honestly, as a business owner, you shouldn't be wasting your time trying to figure out marketing. So it's the same thing as like hiring a marketing person. Um, but if you were to do it yourself, I just feel like just test, try different things. Don't be scared. If you have, you know, content that you feel very good about, like just throw it out there, you know, and see what happens. But, you know, the key to social media is consistency. So being consistent about it, you know, a lot of times when I talk to a potential client, they're like, oh, we post like one or two times a week. No, I always say you need to be consistent, be consistent with your timing. Um, that's how people start to, oh, OK, they're going to post, you know, today or whatnot. So they know that, you know, there's 
constant content out there. So, I mean, I find that people now, when they say, I want to go to a restaurant, the first thing they'll do is go to social media. And the ROI, you know, you never really know what your ROI is if you advertise on, you know, a commercial or a billboard or a magazine, right? You just know that there's going to be a certain amount of eyeballs, but you don't know if that's turning into butts and seats. In, in a way, it's almost easier to measure because you have post engagement, you have likes, you have shares, you have that kind of thing when you when you bring an influencer into your space. What about did it come up about people that maybe aren't influencers, but but spend a lot of time in restaurants? Like, I mean, when was the last time you went out to dinner and did not see someone in the dining room taking a picture of their food? It's been a while. I wonder if like now almost like restaurateurs and chefs expect it, you know, because it's just, it's so pervasive. You know, what Phil said is, you know, they're engaging with their regulars, but they're also trying to get new customers as well. And so it's a little bit of a balancing act. The Bristol, one of their four restaurants uh, is 14 years old and they've just gone to a kind of prefix tasting menu, which is brand new. And sometimes I think they're doing partly because of the pandemic, it allows them a new effort in not only social media, but public relations and stuff like that to kind of get the word out again. Because what I notice in restaurants, sometimes it's just hard. If you've been, if you're, unless you're brand new, you know, it's hard to stay relevant. And that's in some what, what social media does. It allows them to constantly be interacting with their customers or potential customer base. I think it allows your content to be discovered when you're not even present, right? Especially like TikTok stories and Instagram photos and videos, people can find it in the middle of the night when you're not even necessarily there actively engaging. You know, I, I asked them both, like, do you think there's going to come a day that a restaurant is opening up and they are hiring their new chef based on the amount of followers he or she has. Oh. <laughs> I mean, how about the cooking, right? No, but he has 75,000 followers. Like, I mean, it's going to turn immediately into whatever. I was like, wow. So, you know, and that's already happened in like, in like the acting world sure. and stuff like that. And the book world. I'm sure. It's hard to get a book deal without a without a platform. One thing we did talk about is how is it, it's becoming much more video-based versus picture-based. Instagram, of course, started with just photos. And now the stuff that I look at at Instagram is video. And of course, if I go on YouTube, I, it's, it's video. And it's funny, though, everyone's all on TikTok now. And, you know, back in the day, everything was all production and, you know, very highly produced and everything. But now everyone wants to see like very like raw footage, especially like on TikTok. Um, so using those platforms to kind of show behind the scenes and, um, even showing um, the manager or the owner's personality, you know, that's what people are looking for because they're trying to connect with that restaurant and that owner. Right. And my training in video always was you never like show a jump cut. Now everything's a jump cut. <laughs> like It's all it is. It's like if you if you do a cutaway, which means you're editing, it's like, oh, well, you're just not being authentic. You're hiding something. It will be interesting to see where that where that heads. I mean, it makes sense, right? They're now chefs are kind of rock stars where that wasn't the case, you know, 15 years ago. We have celebrity chefs, things like that. Yeah, I know. Um, I know I've known a lot of chefs and I have joked at times like, can you, you know, when they're out and about, I said, can you give me a set of those chef whites so I can just walk around? 
<laughs> and and have people come up to me and like just you know want to be near me I like yeah I've I've asked that question before. Chef whites are like the new tour bus. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's been going on for a while and it's like, yeah, it's like chef. Well, you know, I had a, I had a really interesting conversation with some, and I think this is where the world changed too. I was talking to a friend and they went to a restaurant and I said, Oh, what'd you think? And they're like, Oh my God, you know, the open kitchen was amazing. And I saw the chef and oh, the, the food looks so good. Did you eat it? <laughs> exactly. They never talked about how it tasted. Interesting. I was like, does that matter? I mean, does that matter? And it's like, oh yeah, that was good. It was good. It was good. Yeah. So there are there are people that are just, you know, they are looking for some are looking for different things and how Instagrammable it is. I mean, you know, it's just it's not necessarily my world, but you know, it's important to a lot of people. All right. Well, always a pleasure, David. Thanks so much. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, breakfast is set to get costlier as bigger price gains are anticipated this year, according to the Agriculture Department's monthly outlook. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Crane's Chicago business is pleased to welcome U.S. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg on Thursday, May 12th, for a special event discussing infrastructure insights. Political columnist Greg Hines will sit down with Secretary Buttigieg to discuss the impact of last fall's historic infrastructure bill and potential for projects throughout Chicago. Tickets are selling quickly, so be sure to reserve your seats now. Registration is open at chicagobusiness.com slash cranes events. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Billionaire entrepreneur and Tesla CEO Elon Musk agreed to buy Twitter for $44 billion on Monday, as Bloomberg noted, using one of the biggest leveraged buyout deals in history to take private the 16-year-old social networking platform. Investors will get 54.20 for each Twitter share they own, the company said in a statement on Monday. The price is 38% more than the stock's close on April 1st, which was the last business day before Musk disclosed a significant stake in the company, sparking a share rally. For background on how all this unfolded, Musk bought an approximately 9% stake in the company in January. By March, he had ramped up his criticism of the company, alleging that the platform's algorithms are biased and feeds cluttered with automated junk posts. He also suggested Twitter's user growth was inflated by bots. So after rejecting an invitation to join the company's board, on April 14th, he offered to take Twitter private, saying he'd make the platform a bastion of free speech and dropping other hints about the changes he'd make as an owner. As Bloomberg noted, the ideas verged from the practical, for example, letting users edit tweets and combating the spread of bots, to a proposal to turn the company's San Francisco headquarters into a shelter for people experiencing homelessness. On April 15th, Twitter adopted a shareholder rights plan, which is a measure known as a poison pill, to fend off unwanted bidders. The company said when it disclosed the plan that the measure kicks in if anyone acquires 15% of the stock without prior approval, and it sought to make sure that anyone taking control of the company through open market accumulation would pay all shareholders an appropriate control premium. But a turning point came last week when Musk pulled together a financing plan that included 12 banks led by Morgan Stanley. The deal was unanimously approved by the company's board and is expected to be completed later this year. Musk secured $25.5 billion of debt and margin loan financing and will pay about $21 billion in equity to fund the deal, according to a statement. 
Crane's Ali Marathi reported that Chicago Reader co-owner Len Goodman is stepping aside so the 50-year-old publication can move forward in its stalled transition to becoming a nonprofit. The Reader's future was thrown into question months ago, as Marathi previously reported, when a disagreement erupted after Goodman wrote a column late last year detailing his concerns over vaccinating his then six-year-old child against COVID-19. And the disagreement put the Reader into limbo, and co-publisher Tracy Bame said last week that the publication was running out of money. Bame, however, told Cranes that now the rest of the transition should occur somewhat quickly. Along with Goodman, three reader board members whose viewpoints align with his are also stepping aside. United Airlines is boosting capacity for transatlantic flights, 25% over 2019 levels, in order to meet an expected increase in demand this summer. United said in a statement that it will add five new transatlantic destinations on April 29th, including Bergen, Norway and Nice, France, in anticipation of a strong recovery in European summer travel. Flights will also resume to 18 European cities in what United said is the largest transatlantic expansion in its history. American breakfast foods are set to be more expensive, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture's latest monthly projections. Eggs are among the items seeing bigger price gains this year in the Agriculture Department's monthly outlook. The agency sees a 6% to 7% gain, which is a big change from just three months ago, when it predicted a range of half a percentage rise or drop. Cereal and bakery products have the same 6% to 7% projection, as do fresh fruits. Overall, the agency now expects food prices to rise 5% to 6% this year, which is at least double the forecast of about 2.5% three months ago. Other categories with big increases compared with last month's outlook are beef, poultry, and vegetables. A year ago, the USDA forecast little inflation or even price drops for many food groups. However, an increase of about 5.5% to the median household's food budget would mean an impact of around $450 per year per household, according to calculations by Bloomberg. Crops from Ukrainian ports have been disrupted by the Russian invasion of the country, and spring planting has also been affected there. Ukraine and Russia together account for over a quarter of the world's trade in wheat and for about a fifth of corn sales. But Bloomberg reported that food prices are also under pressure from wage inflation and energy costs. Jewel Osco parent company Albertson said this month that it expects food inflation to remain at elevated levels at least through September. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, David Manilow. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.